May God's word be spoken. May God's word be heard. And may God's word be lived. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome again to St. Paul's, especially if you're joining us online or in person. Uh, it's great to have you all here today. Um, I just want to start by publicly blaming Tyler for the weather. Uh, Tyler is from California. He doesn't know these things. And he made a bet with his wife last week that we were done with the snow. So you can find him after the service, okay? Friends, if you want to keep your Bible open uh, to our passage, it's Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 34. There's pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, it's page 6 at the back of the Bible, or just pull it up on your phone. Matthew chapter 6, 25. Now we've uh, just heard uh, Jesus say very clearly that worry has no place in the life of the Christian. Can I tell you what I've done all week? I've worried about this sermon. I've worried about getting it done. I've worried about it being any good. Then I've worried about the fact that I've been worrying while I write the sermon on worry. In the mid-1950s, there were two cardiologists, uh, famous, named Friedman and Roseman. And they noticed in a study that type A people were more likely to worry than type B. See if this description reminds you of anyone you know. We are very competitive. We compete over everything and find to our embarrassment that when we play board games with small children, we are desperately trying to win. We swap lanes in traffic jams even though we know there is an eternal law that the lane we have just joined will now move more slowly than the lane we've just left. On the highway, we even hate stopping for gas because when we pull over, we look out over the road and worry about all the cars and trucks we had overtaken who were now going past us. Regardless of our personality type, worry is a force of great power. One of the reasons the Western Alliance has been slow to impose sanctions on Russia is the worry that us voters will not be able to stomach higher prices at the gas station. Whether you are spiritually searching or are already a disciple of Jesus, worry can tighten its fist in our stomach. And as we continue this Lent in our preaching series, looking at the 100 essential passages from the Bible. Last week, Tyler talked about how we look for satisfaction by trying to control things and by staying safe. Now, some of us like to be in control, and uh, some of us even like the thrill of a little bit of risk. But I haven't yet met anyone who enjoys worry. But worry can serve as a helpful diagnostic tool because worry tells us not only a lot about ourselves, but it can also give us life-changing insights into the character of God. And so this morning, we're going to see what worry teaches us, both about ourselves, but also about God. And then we're going to look at the strategy that Jesus holds out to keep our minor and our major worries in check. So worry as an effective diagnostic. When Jesus told his earliest followers not to worry, he was talking to people who had plenty of reasons to do just that. 
These are people who found themselves in a highly precarious financial situation. They'd left their jobs, they'd left their families to go and follow this rabbi around the Judean countryside. Uh, the Romans were beginning to take notice, and Jesus kept slipping in these disconcerting comments referencing persecution and, and death and suffering. And while there can be legitimate things to fear, Jesus obviously saw an inordinate worry and anxiety creeping into his followers, and so he wanted to address it. St. Augustine is a, was an African bishop in the 4th century, and he said that our worries are like breadcrumbs sprinkled behind us. If you follow the breadcrumbs, then you will find the things that enslave us because we fear losing them. Follow the breadcrumbs, says Augustine, because fear and anxiety are always the implosion of a false god. Let that sink in for a moment. Worry and fear are always the implosion of a false god. Augustine, when something which is finite becomes our infinite, we fall from God's happiness. In other words, if good things, good things like friends or family or career, whatever it is, if those good things become our one thing, the one thing we think we have to have in order to be happy or professionally fulfilled, when those good things, good desires, become inordinate desires, that's when we become trapped by fear and worry and that we will lose them and all the peace and happiness that we've convinced ourselves that they're going to guarantee for us. These breadcrumbs of worry, they are a fantastic diagnostic about ourselves and about God because they lead us to what we love. So what, what do we learn about God? Verse 26. Therefore I tell you, says Jesus, do not worry about your life. Now notice the wording. This is not just sensible advice. In fact, it's the same sentence structure used in the Ten Commandments to tell us not to murder or not commit adultery. Look, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. Observe, says Jesus. Make a, an empirical observation from the world around you. It's obvious that the birds are being kept alive and food is provided for them in nature, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And this is where it's interesting. God, as the creator of the universe, obviously cares for God's creation and provides for the material needs of the birds. God is the bird's creator, but not their heavenly father. Are you not much more valuable than them? An earthly father, an earthly dad, may take the dog for the morning walk. Uh, an earthly father might even put out a bird feeder. But an earthly father is not going to provide sustenance for an animal and then neglect his own children. And if this is true of an earthly father, says Jesus, how much more is it true of our heavenly father? And while we may struggle with the idea of God as our heavenly father because we've got a painful relationship with our earthly father, the fact that we struggle in the first place 
is because we're experiencing how far our Father falls short of the love that we deserve, that we want, that we need from our Heavenly Father. Our worry exposes what we yearn for in the character of God. New York writer Tim Keller says this, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that God knows. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that God knows. And we worry because we forget this about the character of God, that God has a perspective on our lives that we never will and can be trusted to provide for us in ways that are best for us. Which, let's be honest, that's intellectually challenging uh, to be content with. What about suffering? And it's also practically difficult to live with, right? There's bills that need to be paid. But I'm still going to put it out there because Jesus does. Worry exposes what we yearn for in the character of God. Worry also diagnoses the kind of operating system of our heart, the operating perspective that's going on in our own hearts. Verse 27. Who of you, by worrying, listen to this bit, can add a single hour to his life? Jesus knows that the vast majority of our worries center around our desire to extend our lives, or at least enhance its quality, a maximize pleasure. And Jesus is not saying that our physical health doesn't matter, or having clothes to wear and food to eat is irrelevant. Of course not. Issues of poverty and hunger and injustice must be on the forefront of the mind of a follower of Jesus, but worrying about them, that's what's useless, says Jesus. And he once again, in verse 30, points us to the natural world and asks us to observe grass. Now, here in Toronto, uh, grass is lovingly watered, it's weeded, it's cared for, often at great expense, and it even you know, becomes a topic of conversation with our neighbors. David, your grass is looking great this year. But when Jesus was speaking, grass was immediately cut, dried and put in ovens where it produced great heat to bake bread. Its life was utterly transient and fleeting. And yet while it was alive, it was clothed in splendor. God even cares for the things that are literally here today and gone tomorrow. Action, not worry, is what God calls us to in the face of hunger and poverty here in Toronto and around the world. And if you think you only have one life to live, then you're much more likely to worry about amassing great wealth or chalking up all those beautiful experiences in life rather than working to alleviate suffering in the lives of other people. But a follower of Jesus is someone who's learning, right? We're all learning here. A follower of Jesus is someone who's learning that this life is but a shadow of the future to come, of eternity. And eternal perspective shows us how fruitless all earthly worry is about material things. 
Paul, an early Christian writer, puts it like this in 2 Corinthians. For this slight momentary affliction, you know, the stuff of life, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Worry is useless. It will not add to your earthly life, and it won't feed the hungry. And don't worry, we were all made for eternity anyway. So, worry is a great diagnostic. First, it teaches us uh, about ourselves, how we need to cultivate an eternal perspective. And secondly, it reminds us of the character of God, our loving Heavenly Father. And so lastly, what strategy does Jesus hold out for us in the midst of our minor and our major worries? Well, it's so simple, it's almost disappointing. Jesus says, apply your faith. Apply your faith. This passage from the Gospel of Matthew is part of the famous Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching those Jews who've decided to follow him. Hence, he makes a clear contrast in verse 32 with uh, the Gentiles, non-Jews who were not following him. And Jesus is not saying, if you worry, you obviously don't have faith. He is not saying that because he's already speaking to disciples, people by definition who have already thrown their lot in with him. Jesus is not concerned here about any absence of faith. And, and you may be sitting here this morning thinking, I don't think I have any faith. That's fine. But what Jesus wants to do instead is he wants us to apply whatever we are learning about who Jesus is to all areas of our lives. We may decide to follow Jesus and place our trust in who he is, but we then, and I include myself, then we can fail to connect the dots to our visa payments or our romantic choices. And in Lent, we're preparing ourselves to celebrate the fact that God so loved the world that he would give up his son Jesus to death so that you and I might not be enslaved to the present and eternal consequences of our sin. Take your faith in that and spread it around, says Jesus. Apply it. When we worry about material things, we are in effect saying that the God who cares so much about our eternal destiny is the very same God who can't be trusted to help us figure out our rent or our broken heart or your youngest child. On my good days, I might trust God with my eternal destiny, but not next week. So don't worry, says Jesus. But do do this. I want you to strive, strive to apply your faith in Jesus to all areas of your life. This is why belonging to one of our connect groups is such a good idea. Friends with whom you can work out how to apply your faith in Jesus to your daily life. Verse 33, but strive, strive for God's kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. 
God's kingdom, where God's dreams and hopes for people are brought into reality through the prayers and actions of the people of God, us, right here, right now. Look, says Jesus, if you really want something to worry about, worry about this instead. Worry about building my kingdom, not yours. Everything will fall into place after that. Baron Fitzgerald was an Irish nobleman at the end of the 19th century. And he only had one son who died soon after he left home. And this was a tragedy that his father never fully recovered from. And so to assuage his grief, he began to invest his considerable wealth in paintings from the great masters. And when he died, uh, his will was found to call for all his paintings to be sold at auction. And because of their quality, this was an auction attended by uh, collectors and museums from all over Europe. And when the day of the auction came, the lawyer read from Fitzgerald's will. It was instructed that the first painting to be sold was a painting of my beloved son. The portrait was by an unknown artist and of little artistic merit. The only bidder was an old servant who had known and loved the young boy. For a small sum of money, he purchased the painting, obviously for its sentimental value. There was thin, polite applause. And as the gavel came down on the purchase, the lawyer read a second time from the will. Whoever buys the painting of my son gets it all. The auction's over. Whoever gets the son gets it all. We've been offered the sun, and the sun commands us not to worry. I can't tell you not to worry. Who cares what I think? Only Jesus, only the sun has the authority, the legitimacy, the authenticity to command us like that. He gave up every earthly concern. He set aside every worry about his body, about his needs. He set it all aside to be crucified for us. And it's only because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus that we are set free from ultimate concerns. Our eternal destiny is assured, which is the only thing that could ever give you any confidence in your daily life to say to that cold, dark hand of worry, no, thank you, I'm not interested. The God whom I'm trusting for today I'm also going to trust for, a mo for tomorrow. I will not think your thoughts. With that freedom can come great purpose to strive, to strive towards building God's kingdom. Let God rule in our lives, in the lives of our families, and in this neighborhood right around us. Thanks be to God. Amen.